One guest, 10 songs, 10 reasons. Music was my first love on Radio Glamorgan. My guest today joining us from his home is one of the biggest names in TV and BBC and commercial radio, David Hamilton, who in 2019 celebrates 60 years in broadcasting. We'll hear from David and talk about his music choices and his career after his first choice, which is from Cliff. Come on, pretty baby, let's move it and groove it. It's a pleasure and a delight to welcome you to Hospital Radio Glamorgan and this edition of Music Was My First Love. I hope we find you well. Andrew, yes, good evening. I'm fine, thank you, and uh, looking forward to chatting to you and also to hopefully hearing some good music. And uh, Cliff Richard that you just played there, Move It, Cliff was the first star that I ever interviewed. I was doing my national service in the RAF and I was posted to Germany. And it was a very exciting time in Germany because... Elvis Presley was there at the same time doing his national service with the U.S. Army. I didn't actually meet him. I think Elvis was in Frankfurt and I was in Cologne. But I did meet Cliff. Uh, So I was probably 20 and I think Cliff was 18. And my first impression of him was what a nice guy. And I've met him and interviewed him many times down the years. Never changed that first opinion that I had of him. The ultimate professional. Isn't he still 18? Is he still 18? Yeah. <laughs> I think he is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think he still is 18. He, he's like Peter Pan. Of course, he went through a, a dreadful time... Didn't he, yeah. Uh, with, the, ...with the thing that happened when the police raided his home. I'm so glad that that's behind us now, because he didn't deserve that. He'd had an unblemished career. Yeah. And to pick on him like that, I think, was, uh, was very unfortunate. Before you entered into broadcasting, after you left school, you started as a, a scriptwriter. Had you, had you done a lot of writing then in school? Well, yes. My father was a journalist, so I always loved English and I loved writing. And when I was, I think, just the last days of my 15th year, I think, I sent an article to a national magazine called Soccer Star. I was always a big football fan. And to my surprise, they published it. So in those days, you wrote to people. So I I wrote to the editor and said, would he be interested in my writing a weekly column? And again, to my surprise, he said yes. So for two years, uh, as a schoolboy, I was a columnist on Soccer Star magazine. When I left school at 17, I thought, well, what I'd like to do is is get an office job there with Soccer Star. So I went up to their office in Cheapside in London. When the editor met me, he got a surprise. He thought I was about 40 from the way that I wrote. And and I got a bit of a surprise to find how untidy the office was. But um, with the press cuttings that I had from Soccer Star, I managed to get a job as a scriptwriter. Actually, what happened was, when I left school, I I was out of work for about two months. And my father said to me, he said, you must get a job. So I said, well, I want a job as a writer. So he said, well, look, anyway, job came up for an office boy at ATV, which was one of the new television companies. So I went along and I did that for a few months and I collected and delivered the mail to and from the movers and shakers, people like uh, Lord Grade and Val Parnell who ran ATV. And one day I got chatting to the head of the script department and he said, you seem like a bright boy. What what do you want to do? So I said, well, I'm a writer. I said, uh, he said, what have you written? So I told him about soccer star and I took some of my press cuttings in and uh, he said I might have something for you. Anyway there was a writer in his department called Tessa Diamond 
who had just created a new television series of, I think, the first soap, and it was Emergency Ward 10. And she was leaving to write Emergency Ward 10, and he needed a new scriptwriter, and uh, he took me on. So at the age of 17, I became a scriptwriter at ATV. And we'll, we'll talk about the British Forces Radio shortly, but before radio in 1960, your TV career started on the other side of the camera, hosting many shows and working with the likes of Benny Hill and Tommy Cooper. How did TV start for you? I suppose writing obviously gave you a foot in the door. Well, when I came back uh, to England after doing my national service, it was quite difficult to get into radio. And uh, a job came up. I went back to my script writing job for a few months. And then a job came up as a television announcer in Manchester. In those days, announcers used to appear in vision in between the programmes. So uh, I went up to uh, Manchester and somebody's... Uh, had left for a few months. His mother was ill back home in South Africa, so they needed somebody for about three months. And I went up there and, and did that, and I really enjoyed it. And then a, a job came up at Tyne T's television in Newcastle. So I went up there for a year in 1961, and I learned everything about television, as you could in those days on regional television. I learned about announcing, news reading, program interviewing, it was a wonderful grounding. It's something that doesn't happen, really, for people nowadays. People are now are just thrust in on reality shows yeah. and become stars overnight. But in my day, you know, you sort of learnt your craft gradually. There was a wonderful, with the various regional television companies, you know, there was Time Tees, ABC in Manchester. There was Harlech Television, I think, wasn't it, originally, then TWW in Wales. Every station had its own local personality. Your second choice is from the wonderful Connie Francis. Tell us about Lipstick on Your Collar. Connie Francis was the second star that I met after Cliff Richard and the first international star. And she turned up at the studios in Cologne to promote her record, Lipstick on Your Collar. She was small, she was dark, she was very attractive. What I remember was that she remembered everybody's name. There were about a dozen of us. It's something I learned later that Americans are very good at. And when she turned to me and said, what do you think, David? I have to remember, I was a little spog doing his national <laughs> service in the RAF. And here was this huge international star calling me by my name. I nearly spilt my drink, which, by the way, was lemonade. <laughs> um, so, uh, needless to say, there were plenty of plays for lipstick on your collar. with radio came in 1959 in Germany with the British Forces Network. Had you always had an interest in radio? Well, yes. As a boy, I grew up in a, in a remote farmhouse in Sussex, where I live again now, funnily enough. The radio was our window to the world because we had no television. And so all these wonderful programs came into our homes, like Take It From Here and Itmar and all the great variety shows. And then later, when I was a teenager, I moved on to Radio Luxembourg, where you could hear rock and roll, which was the music of, of my generation, which we loved. And uh, my broadcasting hero was Pete Murray. And I used to listen to Pete on Radio Luxembourg. And, of course, you wondered what radio people looked like. And there was a magazine called Fab 208, and there was a picture of him there one day. He was very handsome, and he was horse riding in the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. I thought, what a glamorous job he's got. He goes horse riding and answers his fan mail by day, and then he plays records at night. I thought, I'd like to do that. 
with all my my school friends when I told them they they laughed. They said, "What you with your South London accent? How are you going to do that?" <laughs> because all the people on the wireless talk posh. Yeah. So uh, I got myself a Grundig tape recorder. I hired it, lugged a big, great big heavy thing with spools, and I I took it home and I read things into it and I got rid of the rough edges of my voice until eventually I sounded like a broadcaster. So. Radio had always been my first love. And obviously, did you have music at home growing up? I did in later years, yes. My father had a radiogram. Some of your older listeners will remember that. And I remember one of the first records I bought was Roy Orbison and Only the Lonely. I think we'll play that later on, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll tell you the story behind it. OK. Your third choice, David, on this edition of Music Was My First Love is from what won't surprise you are the most popular artists on this series, and that's the Beatles, with Please Please Me. Did you get to work with them on TV or radio? I did. I did one of the first television interviews with the Beatles on a programme called ABC at Large, and I interviewed them and Brian Epstein, their manager, and his new protégé, who was Jerry Marsden, Jerry and the Pacemakers. OK, yeah. And I think Jerry and the Pacemakers on the show sang... How do you, what was it, how, how do you like it, was it, how do you, how do you, you do, uh, yes, we, we could do a duet. Yeah, we'd do a duet. <laughs> uh, anyway, they sang it, and of course they became the first band to have three consecutive number ones, uh, so they were very successful. But later that year, I introduced the Beatles in concert in Manchester. Of course, it was fairly early in their career. I had no idea that they were going to go on to become the biggest band of all time, although... Uh, it was before the word Beatlemania had been coined, but, but still, you know, their fans were pretty uh, frenetic about them. I introduced them in concert, and I remembered that tickets to see the Beatles were 10 shillings, and my fee was 10 guineas. That was 10 pounds and 10 shillings. Come on, come on. was founded 67 and was given your own daily show 225 in 73 was it and was it exciting to be part of something so new which had obviously been established to fight off pirate radio oh it was very very exciting when um, Derek Chinnery who was the controller of Radio 1 told me that I was going to have my own daily show and he said Tony Blackburn and I would each have the longest shows that Radio 1 had ever had Tony Blackburn uh, three hours in the morning and me, as you said, two to five, three hours in the afternoon. And to be part of the uh, lineup that Radio One had at that time, it was before, it was the year 1973, was the year the first commercial radio stations opened. That was later that year, in October. The first stations were LBC and Capital in London, and then gradually, you know, they mushroomed all over the country. I was part of the lineup that was given the job of trying to hang on to Radio One's enormous audience because at that time radio audiences were enormous because Radio 1 was really the only station. There were no local commercial stations or BBC stations and television closed down at midnight and there was there was no breakfast television so Radio 1 was huge. I mean the audiences were maybe 17 or 18 million and the lineup in June 1973 was Noel Edmonds on breakfast, Tony Blackman in the morning, Johnny Walker at lunchtime and me in the afternoon. So to be part of that team was really exciting. It led to me doing Top of the Pops. 
I think, you know, I, I brought out a book recently called The Golden Days of Radio 1. And I think they were indeed the golden days because they just had such huge audiences and Radio 1 was such a big deal. That's an amazing, for me, looking back, I mean, I'm early 50s, that's a fantastic lineup to work through your day with Noah Lemons, Tony Blackburn, Johnny Walker yourself. It was a good lineup, and of course there were there were lots of other um, you know DJ stars on there as well. There was people like Dave Lee Travis, Ed Stewart, of course, Stu Pot, who was doing yeah. Junior Choice, Alan Freeman, Fluff Freeman. Uh, it was a wonder, wonderful lineup. I mean, it was probably the, the best known DJ lineup of all time. Was Paul Burnett and, there at that stage? Paul Burnett was there, but Paul Burnett uh, took over. Uh, a couple of years later, actually, from Johnny Walker. Yeah. Johnny Walker left, and he went to California for a while, and Paul Burnett came in uh, as his replacement. All, all these changes were, were made. You know, they kept kept it fresh. Yeah. New people kept coming in. And uh, later on in, uh, well, in the mid-'70s, my program was heard on Radio 1 and Radio 2 because what happened was that there was uh, an economy move at Radio 2. They chopped the afternoon show and my show went out on both networks. So, as you can imagine, the audience was even bigger than, much bigger than yeah. before. Your next choice on this edition of Music Was My First Love is from the young men of rock, the Rolling Stones. Tell us about them and particular track that you chose, and it's all over now. After I worked with the Beatles the following year, 1974, I compared a concert by the Rolling Stones. And when I say compared, uh, at that time... Lots of shows were done in the way that old variety shows were done, with several acts leading up to the top of the bill. And so I, I had to introduce all the various different acts and then the Rolling Stones. So it was 1974. Um, Stones were, again, in the early stages of their career, but uh, enormously popular, like the Beatles. I mean, people, some people like the Beatles better, some people like the Stones better, but, um, and some people like both, of course, as I did. But uh, what I remember about uh, the Rolling Stones concert was I had a little sports car, I had an MGB sports car, and I parked it at the back of the theatre in Manchester, as you could in those days, and somebody thought it was Mick Jagger's car <laughs> and scratched a love message on the bonnet. So for a week I was driving around with, I love you, Mick, on the bonnet <laughs> of my car. choice uh, is someone we mentioned earlier that you worked with in TV and I understand gave you the nickname that has stood for many years. Tell me about working with Ken Dodd. Well, let me remember the year 1967, I think it was, and ABC Television were launching a new program called Doddy's Music Box, hosted by Ken Dodd, featured a lot of the top musical acts of the day people like Dusty Springfield Billy Fury, Matt Monroe The Searchers interspersed with sketches with Ken, uh, a repertory of actors, and me as the interviewer or, or straight man. And during rehearsals, Ken called me Diddy David, because he, uh, he was quite a bit taller than me. So, uh, of course, everybody chuckled. I mean, the audience were the makeup girls and the cameramen and the props boys, and everybody chuckled. And it, in fairness to Ken, he took me to one side afterwards. He said, do you mind me ca calling you that? He said, because... If you do, I won't do it anymore, and if you don't mind, I think it'll stick. I said, I don't mind, and I've been stuck with it now for about 50 years. <laughs>
What was he like? Was he was he one of those people that what you saw on camera was what you got off camera? Yes, I think he was really. I mean, it was it was wonderful to work with him because the show went out at peak time on Saturday night. Our sort of double act, as it were, really took off. And when he was doing personal appearances, very often people said. Oh, will you bring Diddy David along as well? So I got to spend a lot of time with him. I got to know him very well. Of course, he was a wonderful, wonderful character. And sometimes I'd go to his shows and, you know, they'd last about five hours. The audience went home at about one o'clock <laughs> in the morning. And, of course, I was very sad when, uh, when he died. Yeah. Injected, of course, there was the famous court case with uh, Inland Revenue versus yeah. Ken Dodd. And we were all very worried that... Um, you know, he, he might, might get sent to prison. But, of course, it was a Liverpool jury. Liverpudlians are probably more fond of Ken Dodd than they are yeah. of the Inland Revenue. <laughs> uh, and, uh, he was found not guilty, and he then used it in his act. And uh, I remember a wonderful gag he had. He said, I didn't think I had to pay the Inland Revenue because I live at the seaside. <laughs> <laughs> happiness, happiness. The greatest gift that I possess I thank the Lord that I've been blessed With more than my share of happiness Only the lonely Know the way I feel tonight Only the lonely Well, that was Roy Orbison and Only the Lonely Great pleasure to be here with uh, Andrew today and to play some of my favorite records. That was one of the first records that I bought. As I mentioned to Andrew earlier, I, I used to play that on my father's radiogram at home, and I played it over and over again. And my father said to me, why do you keep playing the same record? And I said, because it's fantastic. So imagine how thrilled I was years later to meet Roy Orbison and to interview him on one of the early satellite TV channels. I think he was. people say to me, who was the most exciting star that you met and interviewed? And I think I would say Roy Orbison. I think the reason was because he'd been a star all my lifetime. Mm. And he had that wonderful voice. And he had the shades on, of course, in the studio. And I sat, you know, just opposite him. And I thought, gosh, you know, here I, he's meant so much in, in my lifetime, all of his music. And here am I actually sitting opposite the big O. When you moved to Radio 2 in 77, was it very different to Radio 1? Well, it wasn't really, because I had some very good producers. That they kept the programme as close to what it had been before, so it was probably sharper than anything else that was on Radio 2. There were one or two people within the building who felt that it shouldn't be as poppy as it was, but we kept a lot of the listeners that we'd had on Radio 1. Not too much changed, really. It perhaps got a little bit more melodic, but you know, we weren't playing punk, obviously, or anything no. like that. But for a long time, it continued to be much the same show. We kept the Hamilton Hot Shots, my record of the week, and uh, I think we kept everything stops for tea. So we kept a lot of the features that we'd had before. Is it true that, that after a while with Radio 2, you felt it was becoming too geriatric? Well, we had a new controller who came in at that particular time. I think they were trying to push Radio 1 and Radio 2 further apart, and there was no, no doubt that Radio 2 was being aimed at an older audience, and certainly older than I was and older than the music that I was playing. What I felt Radio 2 should have been was pretty well what it is today. Yeah. But 
I was being urged to play people like Max Bygraves and Foster and Allen, whereas I had been playing bands like T-Rex, and uh, I just felt the gear change was too quick, and it, it wasn't right. And the woman who was running the station, the controller, she brought out a nostalgia package, and uh, it had in it panpipes and whistling and whirlitzes. So that's what we're going to play, you know. So yeah. I said, um, is this negotiable? So she said, well, how do you mean? I said, well, you know, can I feed in a couple of ideas? She said, what, what have you got in mind? So I said, well, you've, you've got a nostalgia package. There's no mention of Motown. And she said to me, what do you mean by Motown? So I thought, well, how can I possibly work for somebody who mm. doesn't know what Motown yeah. is? How is she ever going to judge what I do? And so I said to her, I said, well, Motown is, is the, the single biggest nostalgia package of all. I explained, you know, there were people like Diana Ross and Stevie Wonder and Smokey Robinson. She seemed to be unaware of these people. I thought, well, you know, these are huge international stars, and it's the most wonderful nostalgia package, and we weren't going to play it. So I left, I went to commercial radio. Radio 2 now is what I advocated it should have been then. Mm. So, you know, it is what it is, really, and um, the rest, as they say, is history. Let's talk about your next choice, which is from the late, great David Cassidy. Back in the 70s, I compared his UK tour. He was a very nice guy, but uh, he, was, he was kept prisoner in his hotel because his fans were so, uh, you know, trying to get at him, really, basically. He wanted to go horse riding during the day, he couldn't do any of that. And he, when he was singing on stage, he didn't like the girls screaming because uh, he was a good singer and he wanted them to hear his voice and all you could hear was the screaming. So he put cotton wool in his ears so he couldn't hear the screaming and then unfortunately couldn't hear the band. So <laughs> it was kind of no-win situation. No. <laughs> but nice, lovely guy and again, you know, I was very sad uh, recently when he passed away. Could it be forever? Just a waste of time But I don't think so Cause you let me know You make me feel like you're mine on this distant music was my first love, David, is from the most famous all-girl group since the Supremes, and that's the Three Degrees with When Will I See You Again. I've got a lovely story for you about that. When Sunday Night at the London Palladium came back in the 70s, I was doing the voiceover at the start of the show. You know, tonight, Sunday Night at the London Palladium presents. And I was also doing the warm-up beforehand for the audience when they came in before the show. And I was sitting, I used to go to rehearsals in the afternoon, I was sitting there in the stalls. Three girls came on, sang a song called Year of Decision. It was about the time, you mentioned the Supremes, it was about the time that Dinah Ross was leaving the Supremes, and I looked at these girls, and I thought, they could be the new Supremes. They were not from Detroit, they were from Philadelphia. And they were called the Three Degrees. Anyway, I saw my producer in the morning, and I said, what's our... Hamilton Hotshot, our record of the week, and he told me what it was. I said, can we change it at the last minute? He said, what have you got in mind? I said, did you see the Palladium show last night? And he said, no. I said, well, millions of people did, and these three girls came on and sang this song. It was, it was terrific. I think it'll be a big hit. So he listened to it in the office, and he said, yeah. He said, all right, we'll, we'll go with that. Year of Decision was a big hit. What we tended to do, if we found new artists we would stick with them so we would you know then maybe have the next record as another record of the week well the next record turned out to be absolutely huge it was when will i see you again that went to number one in about 25 different countries 
It sold about, including the UK, sold about five million records around the world. And when it sold a million, the record company said to me, the girls are doing a concert at, I've got to know them quite well by now. I worked with them on Seaside Special. I did a program with them for Radio One called, similar to this actually, I think it was called My, My Top Ten. So I said, yeah, it'd be a pleasure to present them with a gold disc. So they were at the Victoria Apollo. I waited in the wings for the queue, and I walked out with a gold disc under my arm. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you that when will I see you again? I sold a million. So the place erupted. I gave the disc to Sheila Ferguson, the lead singer. The band struck up. They, they did. I stood in the wings listening to it. They'd never sung it better. And I thought, how lovely to be part of their story. You moved into commercial radio with the likes of uh, Radio 210 in Reading, Capital Gold, Melody FM, Liberty Radio, Classic Gold, Splash. How different is working and broadcasting commercial radio compared to BBC Radio? Well, I think a lot of it came as quite a culture shock. You know, I was uh, dealing with commercial commercials, which I had to, in those days, they were on cartridges, so you had to slot them all in. It was very different, and of course, you're working for business people, unlike the BBC. So it was. It, I'm glad I did it really because it was. Uh, it was a form of radio, but not as I know it. So basically, you're doing the same thing, but in, in a in a different environment. I, I'm glad I didn't stay with the BBC the whole time. Although I am now working for them again. I I live in Sussex now, and I do a lot of work for my local station, BBC Sussex and BBC Science. Tell me, can I ask you about the wireless that you joined in 2012? With another radio station, it was actually uh, sponsored by Age UK, the charity. They just came along and said to me, would you like to do some programmes for us? So I did, you know, I mean, every now and then somebody comes along and says, like you today, would you like to do something for us? And, um, you know, I mean, I've, it's no secret, obviously, if I've been in radio for 60 years, and I started at 20, it's fairly obvious I must now be over 80. But I don't think my voice has changed too much. It might sound a bit different. I knew exactly who you were. I was transported to being a schoolboy again. Yeah, voices, with any luck, voices don't change too much. Uh, probably our appearance changes more. But i tell you what I did recently, and I did Pointless Celebrities. Right. And that was good fun. I went up to Elstree and did that, and I was on with some very nice people, so... Um, Who were you paired up with? I was paired up with Jenny Hanley, and Jenny Hanley and I worked together at Saga Radio. Right. And, um, of course, she was the host, host of, one of the hosts of Magpie years ago. She's, she's a very dear person, so... We had a very nice day. We did okay. That's all I can Good. tell you. We did okay. Your penultimate track is from Culture Club. Tell me about Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? When I was at Radio 2, as I mentioned to you earlier, I tried to keep the programme much as it had been at Radio 1. And when Boy George and Culture Club came along, for some reason, Radio 1 didn't want to play them. So my producer and I said, uh, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? This is a really good record. So let's have it as our record of the week. And... When it became a big hit, it was number one, the record company gave me a gold disc. And, you know, sometimes they gave gold discs to DJs as well as to the artists. And I've got it in my office here, and it says on it, with thanks to David Hamilton for making this record, uh, his record of the week, and helping to make it sell a million. Boy, what I was thrilled about is that uh, Boy George has acknowledged this in his concerts, and there's a, 
a clip on YouTube of him saying, the man who helped me become a star was Diddy David Hamilton. He said, I went to Radio 1 when I was a teenager, and I gave him a picture of David Bowie, who was a great hero of mine. Anyway, he, he, he kept the picture. He said, I don't know whether he remembered me later, but he was the man who helped, do you really want to hurt me, become such a big hit. He said, uh, God bless you, Diddy, or something like that. So it's very, a bit like the three degrees, you know, when you help to make artists successful, and when later on they acknowledge that help. Do you really want to choice uh, is something festive and from, uh, for me, one of the finest and underrated songwriters of the late 20th century, Gilbert O'Sullivan. Well, I thought we would finish with a Christmas record and you know there have been many great Christmas records down the years, but this is my favourite and what I love is the sentiment of it. It was recorded back in the 70s at the time of the Troubles in Ireland and of course he's a, an Irish artist, yeah. but the sentiment behind it is as true today as it was all those years ago and the sentiment is i'm not dreaming of a white christmas but a peaceful world beautiful 60 years in broadcasting as of 2019 when you look back david what are you most proud of that's very hard to say i think i'm proud of the fact that uh, that i've i've kept going all the time you know that i 60 years on i'm i'm still broadcasting I love broadcasting. I mean, to me, the microphone is like the umbilical cord. You know, <laughs> I've never severed it. I think if I, if I didn't broadcast, I think I would suffer from withdrawal symptoms. So I think I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky because I found early on a career that I loved, and I've been able to earn a living from it for 60 years. So, and it's actually brought me a great deal of pleasure because uh, in the words of the, you know, the John Miles song, to live without my music would be impossible to do. That, by the way, is one of my favorite records. And by the way, it was a Hamilton hotshot. It was one of my records of the week. And I'm very thrilled that you use it as, as your, your theme. Yeah, and we, we play it at the beginning and we'll play it out as well at the end. John Miles is a, is a terrific artist. And, you know, music means so much to people. Music is memories. It, it's memories of people. It's memories of, of places. And God bless all the wonderful songwriters who've written these fantastic songs for us to enjoy down the years. But that's also why it works so well here in, in hospital radio. We, we had a note from somebody saying that she was coming in for some tests. She was very nervous, you know, very on edge. Walked past our studio, we were playing the Doobie Brothers, and she said she felt a hundred times better. So music has that power, doesn't it? Were you playing Listen to the Music? Because Listen to the Music, I used that for a long time yeah. my, as my opening theme. And I saw the Doobie Brothers at the Rainbow Theatre in Finsbury Park, which is now closed. They were a wonderful rocking band. Can I just say, actually, finally, Go on. Uh, that the work that hospital radio stations do around the country is absolutely fantastic, as I understand you know, all the people who do it are volunteers, so they're certainly not doing it for the money, but they're doing it for the pleasure that they bring people. I think, you know, more power to your elbow. Long may you continue. That's very kind of you. David Hamilton, it's been an honour and a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Oh, 
You've been listening to Music Was My First Love on Radio Glamorgan, where radio broadcaster David Hamilton has been choosing ten of his favourite tracks. I'm Andrew Wolfe, and join me again soon when I'll be joined by someone else choosing ten of their favourite tracks on another edition of Music Was My First Love. Music of the future